This morning's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2, 6, and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've already sung it several times this morning, but for to us a child is born. Now, I hope that in your Advent season playlist on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your music, that you have Handel's Messiah in there. Some of you probably do, and some of you, I'm sure, do not. But what a wonderful chorus in Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born. And this text just rings in my ears as I read it, thinking of Handel's setting of that text. In this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah prophesied over 700 years before this child was born. 700 years before this child was born, Isaiah prophesied what our deliverer would be like. And maybe even more importantly, that our deliverer would come and come as a child. This anointed one would be born to bring salvation and hope to mankind as an expression of God's mercy and glorious power. Have you ever considered how interesting it is that Christmas is so widely loved and and embraced even in our culture among non-Christians? Now you could say this is just because of clever marketing It's just because uh, of all the commercialization. Uh, It's just because of, of all the decorations, and we just love giving and receiving gifts. But actually, I think there's something greater to the fact that Christmas, this season, is embraced by so many even outside Christendom. Consider some of the themes that go along with Christmas. Lights, feasts. Singing, joy, peace, the evergreen life, in some way righteousness, meaning we all want to behave better around Christmas time, whether it's just you know, naughty or nice, you think you're going to get something more of it. But righteousness, generosity, abundance, receiving and giving of gifts, but there's also mystery, maybe for the unbeliever, like this idea of magic. It's a, it's a holiday from the drudgery and dread of normal everyday life. 
This is what our culture embraces as Christmas. But think of how many of those themes live in a text like Isaiah chapter 9. And there's this idea of anticipation. I I don't know about uh, you guys, but in my house, it's been a long time. It's It's been a couple months since you could ask at the dinner table, how many days until Christmas? And the answer is right there. Like they know it. They're counting it down. There's anticipation for what's coming. Many of these themes connect with our deepest human longings. And some of our own needs and weaknesses. Our deepest experiences. See, the prominence of Christmas can't just be chalked up to marketing or Santa Claus. There are deep needs, desires, hopes wrapped up in the promise of this Christ child being born. It's what gives us hope. We've joked over the last few weeks in our series in uh, Genesis about you know, the absurdity of, of preaching Cain and Abel or the fall in the garden just weeks before Christmas. But I think it's totally um, appropriate for us to see how right from the start in humanity, as soon as sin happened, as soon as the fall came and everything became broken, we needed a Savior and Redeemer. And that's given to us, the answer to that is given to us in this Advent season. So I hope as we look at our text today that you'll see the need that we discovered in Genesis chapter 3 being fulfilled here in Isaiah chapter 9. So the gospel stories in the New Testament also touch on some of these themes of light and joy and singing and God being with us. But I think as we look at Isaiah 9 together, we will see so many of the things that that really make Christmas the thing we long for, the coming of the Christ child. I think we'll see that here in our text in Isaiah 9. So this morning we'll see, first, the deliverance that is needed, second, deliverance provided, and finally, the deliverer described. Let's pray together. Lord, we can look around us and know the need for deliverance, whether it's in the headlines of the news, whether it's in tragedies that we've witnessed or experienced in our own lives, whether it's just the the shadow and darkness that seeps into our own souls, Lord, we know We know that we have a need that has to be solved and met from outside of us through a deliverer. So God, would you help us this morning as we we read from a prophet from thousands of years ago of a deliverer that was to come and now has come to solve these deepest needs in our soul the deepest needs in our culture, the deepest needs of all humanity, they have been provided for by a deliverer. And Lord, that deliverer, Jesus of Nazareth, whom we worship and adore and submit to this morning, 
came as your own son to save us. Help us to know him and worship him rightly this morning. Amen. First, let's look at the deliverance needed. Now, in some sense, we don't need to talk about why we need deliverance. We experience the effects of the fall. We experience the effects of sin in our lives. But we see here in our text, we're going to look at a few verses we haven't read yet. We see the need for deliverance. Look in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Look down to verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now we're delving into some history here in our text. There were things going on in Isaiah's day, which we may not fully understand. I don't know about you, but 8th century BC is not on the top of my timeline. It's not what I know the best. But he mentions here Zebulun and Naphtali, which were two of the northernmost tribes of Israel. And they were the first, they were the first tribes to be conquered as the Assyrians came in in 734 BC, around the time when Isaiah was writing. They were in political turmoil. They were experiencing military defeat, and even worse, there was an abandonment of faithful worship of the true God. That was the situation in Isaiah's day. These northern tribes were going to be the first to receive God's wrath in particular ways as God brought judgment on them. He describes this in verses 1 and 2 as gloom, anguish, contempt, deep darkness, this is what the Israelites were experiencing. And this, these descriptors take us beyond just a description of, of historical things happening, right? Gloom, anguish, contempt, and deep darkness go deeper. They go deeper than just, yeah, we're being attacked by the Assyrians. It's going to go bad for us, but we're going to have some new rulers, some new people in charge. No, it it goes, it goes into their very soul. In fact, deep darkness here is the same word from Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of deep darkness. This is what the Israelites were experiencing. Verse 4 is filled with language reminiscent of slavery in Egypt. You've got this yoke of burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. These were bad days for Israel. They had wicked rulers, there was idolatry, there were puny attempts at worship, but these conditions only describe what's outside of them. But these northern tribes of Israel were also far from Jerusalem and they had some of the most ethnically mixed of all Israel, and, and the true worship of, of Yahweh was lacking. 
So much so was it mixed that it's called Galilee of the nations in verse one, which could be Galilee of the Gentiles. There was a mix of the people and of worship. And so God's contempt and God's judgment were on them. And the way of King Ahaz, who was the king at the time, was not delivering them. Ahaz's way was ignoring God's commandments and ignoring God's warnings and thinking things were just going to work out. Well, it was not working out. But for us, the significance of this is this is not just a condition for some 8th century BC tribe in Israel. I think Isaiah is actually describing the human condition, the condition in which we all find ourselves outside of Christ. We have the experiences, experiences of darkness, gloom, war, oppression. They've spread across the globe since the garden, since the fall. Since Cain and Abel, this is our human experience. And no amount of enlightenment, no amount of technological advancement, no moral system has been able to erase the significance of these realities. We feel the fallenness. We experience the curse and we long for something better. And that's what Christmas is all about. This darkness light motif in verse 2 helps us realize we're not just addressing external political and moral realities. There's a personal nature, a universality that comes into this this darkness and this light which we long for. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia, this, this might be described as it's always winter and never Christmas. See, the darkness that came because of the curse is universal. It covers the whole globe. It covers all humanity. And there's only one who can rescue us from this darkness. This is why we sing in joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. See, friend, the curse has The curse has found all of us, and we need deliverance that goes beyond mere political deliverance. We need deliverance that goes beyond just creating a moral society. We need a deliverance that gets to the very heart and the very soul and rescues us from the judgment of God. So that's the deliverance that is needed. Let's see the deliverance that is provided There's a real fullness to the deliverance described here in Isaiah. It just covers so much. So let's, I'm gonna, let's list it before we look at it more closely. Because we're, we're tempted to make Christmas about sentimental ideas about family and lights and trees and the baby Jesus. But we don't meditate on the breadth and length and height and depth of the salvation that our deliverer brings. So just in this passage, this is, this is the deliverance we see. Glory instead of contempt. Light instead of darkness. Joy instead of gloom. Burdens lifted. Oppression broken. The battle over. Peace established covenant kept, 
forever. That's all in this passage. Glory instead of contempt, light instead of darkness, joy instead of gloom, burden lifted, oppression broken, battle over, peace established, covenant kept forever. Friend, that is, that is quite the deliverance offered to us here in Isaiah chapter 9. And all of this is accomplished not by our human effort but it's accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of hosts through the child that is born, through the son that is given. Verse 1 makes this strange promise of glory from contempt. Glory instead of contempt. What are we talking about? We mentioned these, these lands up in the north of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. These tribes were going to be conquered first by Assyria. But what else do we know about these lands? Something a few hundred years later. Something in the ministry of Jesus himself from Matthew chapter 4. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, meaning Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that it was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the very areas that were to receive God's judgment first from Assyria are the lands where Jesus began his earthly ministry. Do you see gloom being turned into glory? Gloom to glory, darkness to light. Look at verse 2. What a precious verse. The people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now this word, the people, the people who walked in darkness, who, who are these people? Well, certainly it was the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. But he, he, he ends there on Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the the, the peoples, Galilee of the Gentiles. Friends, there's hope for us because this light has dawned not just on Israel, but on the Gentiles. In Luke 1, Luke says that Jesus came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the fulfillment of this light. And darkness and light are such great pointers to the spiritual realities of what's going on in why we need deliverance. We're always aware of the circumstances surrounding us from which we would love deliverance. A wicked culture, suffering, 
immorality, catastrophe, injustice. And sometimes we're even keenly aware of our own, the darkness that is within us, anxiety, fear, greed, lust, bitterness. And Jesus' light has the power to overcome both of those things. That which is outside of us and that which is inside of us. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In John's prologue to his gospel, we'll hear more from John 1 tonight. And this light is available to us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You don't have to walk in darkness. In Isaiah's day, they didn't know what the fulfillment of this would be. And yet we know, we, we have more of the story. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We have joy instead of gloom. We have, I'm sorry, we have, what was it instead of gloom? Glory instead of gloom. Light instead of darkness. Joy. We get joy as well. In verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So Isaiah points to two occasions where they would experience joy. One, a harvest feast. Sounds a lot like Christmas to me. I've already had some of those feasts already this week. Harvest feast and the joy of dividing the spoil when you've had victory in battle. Two very joyous occasions for God's people as they they would experience victory in battle and would divide the spoil and when they would have a harvest feast. We may be less familiar with the spoil of victory. It's less a part of our daily life, you know, conquering enemies and taking their things. But the joy of harvest we get, and we should, we should understand that. Did you notice in verse 3 and 4 that this is directed at the Lord? You have multiplied the nations. You have increased. You have broken the rod of the oppressor. There is joy. There's also relief from burdens and oppression. Verses four and five speak to this. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We have to figure out what that means in a second. The idea here is the salvation that this deliverer brings is so complete that there will be no more need for boots and garments of battle, much less weapons of warfare. You don't even need to keep the boots you wore into battle. The victory is so complete from this deliverer. And this deliverer will not come by human strength. The mention of Midian here, the day of Midian, directs our thoughts back to the victory of Gideon in the land of Midian, through the power of God, 
in Judges chapter 6 and 7. So if you don't remember this story, I'll just recount it briefly. Uh, the land of Midian's coming against um, the Hebrews and the, the judge that gets raised up, his name is Gideon, and he's going to lead Israel into battle against Midian. He has 32,000 soldiers to take into battle, and God says, that's too many. Um, we need to cut that down a little bit. So the Lord gives them a few tests. First test, 22,000 of the 32,000 get sent home. Then after the next test, 10,000 get sent home. So there's 300 soldiers left. 32,000 cut down to 300 soldiers. Why? So that as they go into battle, they'll realize this was not accomplished by human strength, but by God's deliverance. God's deliverance. One commentator says, human strength in that day had been unavailing, and Gideon had to recognize that the battle was the Lord's, to be won only by his power. And the present victory was similar, for it was won against a foe over whom human hands could have no power, and it was won by God alone. It was a spiritual battle, won because a Christ would be born and the victory consisted in the deliverance of God's people from all that had oppressed them. It was going to come by God's hand, by God's deliverance from all that had oppressed them. See, friends, the deliverance that we need and the deliverance that is provided is beyond what man can accomplish. It's a deliverance from the Lord. It's accomplished through a child that is born to us. So let's look at the deliverer described. These verses that we've been reading each week of Advent and singing about, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our passage has been building on itself this promise of joy and deliverance and peace has been explained with three, four phrases. For the yoke of his burden, you have broken. For every boot of the warrior will be burned. For to us, a child is born. Now, we may, we may read this a little differently than Isaiah's first hearers or listeners because we, we have a name to put with this child, don't we? Jesus of Nazareth, the baby born in Bethlehem. Isaiah's readers didn't have that. Just think how odd this would sound to them. We're gonna have this huge deliverance from all of our things we need delivering from, and how's it gonna come? Well, a child is gonna be born, and a son is gonna be given. Now, we've already had one prophecy here of this child in chapter seven, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So in chapter 7, Isaiah is pointing to 
the solution to all this is God with us. And in chapter 9, the solution is the son for us, the child born for us. Now, I'm not sure if you're paying attention to the verb tenses. If you're reading a different translation, maybe you're like, John, you're speaking in the past, but it's future. This is kind of a weird text. There's a, the Hebrew is in the perfect tense. It's, it's past tense. A child has been born. A son has been given. A light has shone. It's as if Isaiah is so sure, so sure of what he's prophesying that's going to happen in the future, that he describes it in the past. It's like he's, he's in the future looking back. It's so certain that, it's, that I'm going to talk about it in the past. A child has been born. A son has been given. The New American Standard and the Christian Standard translate this in the future. A child will be born. A son will be given. Just pointing to the fact that it's obvious here that this person hasn't come yet in Isaiah's time. But he's speaking with such certitude that it's going to happen that he speaks in what we might call the prophetic past. The prophetic perfect. So a child is born Whoever this son is, and we're, we're you know, for, for Isaiah's crew, they didn't know who he was talking about yet. Just think of the things said about him. The government will be upon his shoulder. He will single-handedly carry the weight of the government and rulership over all things. Now, this couldn't be said of any Jewish ruler In fact, any Jewish ruler would have his own cabinet of advisors and counselors. But this king, spoken of here, he will bear the weight of the government on his own shoulders. You think of of some of the young kings in Israel's history who reigned at a young age. They didn't carry that load themselves. But this ruler, this child, this king will carry the weight of the government on him, of the rulership, not just of Israel, but of all. And then Isaiah gives us these four names to describe what this ruler will be like. And these names make it abundantly clear that Isaiah is not talking about some just mere human king in Jerusalem. So this idea of what does it mean when we we tell the name of a king? Here's a quote. In its highest use, name sums up character. It declares the person. The perfection of this king is seen in his qualification for ruling, wonderful counselor, his person and power, mighty God, his relationship to his subjects, everlasting father, and the society his rule creates, the prince of peace. So we'll look at each of these briefly. Wonderful counselor. I know in, in the King James, it's wonderful, comma, counselor. So there's kind of five names. But I think the ESV and many other translators got it right here. Wonderful counselor. The idea of wonderful here is just extraordinary. Beyond what, what can normally be done. Extraordinary. Uh, one 
Bible translation, an extraordinary strategist. So if you think of a wonderful counselor, don't think of a really good therapist and you're on the couch. Like, that's not the kind of counseling we're talking about here. Wonderful counselor, this is more like the war cabinet, figuring out how we're going to win. How are we going to conquer the enemy? How are we going to accomplish all that we are setting out to do? Well, this king, this child, has all the counsel necessary to bring it about. He does not need any outside counsel to know what to do and when to do it and how to do it. This king has all of the wisdom necessary to guarantee victory. There is no situation which might come up in your life or come up in the universe that can stump him. He has all the wisdom Necessary. He has wisdom beyond Solomon. He is wisdom personified. So remember this. Remember this when you pray for wisdom that we serve the wonderful counselor, the extraordinary counselor who knows all and gives his wisdom. The psalmist says, Your commandments made me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Our Lord's wisdom prevails. Wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. So if you can imagine the child would be king as a wonderful counselor, just being a, a human king, well, then we have a problem here with mighty God. It's clearly divine. The child will be called mighty God. And no Hebrew king would ever accept such a label such a name. It would be blasphemy. But it is true of this king. Even as a child, he is mighty God. Again, it's difficult to imagine what the original readers would have thought. Who is this king that's mighty God? That's king of kings and lord of lords, we might say. This child is not only divinely wise, but is infinitely mighty. Nothing is too difficult for him. I love this from Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Or Jeremiah 32. Ah, oh, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So friend, as we pray, let's remember that we serve a wonderful counselor. We pray to a wonderful counselor. We pray to the mighty God who is all-powerful. He's also everlasting father. Strange name to give to a child but it is descriptive of the kind of king that he is. And as I mentioned last week, we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse this by thinking now we're talking about the father in the Trinity where we were talking about the son. No, we're still talking about the son here. So this is not a Trinitarian thing of father, son. This is the child who is born and this is the name that he will have, everlasting father. It's speaking of how this king rules in his rulership. 
For instance, in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Or if you just think about the parables of Jesus, the kind of king, the kind of ruler that he is, he's the kind that's a caring, attentive father that not one of your hairs falls from your head without him knowing or knowing what we need or leaving the 99 to find the one, his care for us, his fatherly leadership for us will never end. And finally, he is the Prince of Peace. This child who is to be born is the Prince of Peace. So back in verse 5, you saw even the boots of those who were at war are going to be burned because there's no more need for battle. So is it just that this king conquers all that's before him by military might? Or does this king bring peace through deliverance and redemption? One, one of the significances of, of Prince of Peace here is this is a fulfillment of, of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now Israel experienced small tastes of that deliverance under David and his descendants. But under this descendant, the Prince of Peace, there is ultimate peace. This is the peace spoken of in Luke 2. Luke 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This king, this child is the Prince of Peace. But it's not just peace from our external enemies. As we've already heard from the prophecy, Mike, this morning, the real peace that's needed, the real peace that's brought to us by this Prince of Peace is peace with God himself. Peace with God himself. Often we're aware of the peace we need in our circumstances, family conflict, difficulties at work, political unrest, But the peace that we need that really solves the darkness, that brings us from darkness to light, is the peace which Christ brings. This is from Romans 5. I don't have it for the projector, but since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, for God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From the peace that comes, the peace which we can offer to others, comes through this child, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And finally, look with me at verse 7. Because I want you to just try to imagine how this actually works. 
Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, it doesn't say of his government and peace, there will be no end. Of the increase of his government and rulership and peace, there will be no end. It is forever expanding. And with it, our joy forever expanding. This is no mere human child or king. And it is done for us. It is done so that we might experience the grace and mercy and goodness of God. So, what does a passage like this encourage us to do? First, meditate and believe in the, in the child king that this passage is telling us about. And just practically, I encourage you to pray. Pray according to these four names. So when we think of prayer, think, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Think of all of those with each of these names of our deliverer. Wonderful counselor. Give thanks for his counsel. Pray for his counsel. Confess your need for his counsel. Mighty God, trust in your prayers in what this God can accomplish. Everlasting Father, know that his relationship to you is not one of scorn and derision as you come in faith, but the Father who loves you and the one who offers peace, peace with God and peace that lasts and increases forever. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy. Thank you for this promise from so long ago, hundreds of years before your son was born to Mary. Thank you for the hope that was communicated here. Thank you for the joy that is promised. Thank you for the deliverance that is offered. So Lord, we come this morning in faith, trusting in this deliverer, this child who was born with us, Emmanuel, and also for us, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We pray in his name. Amen.